Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction. This show was created to provide accurate expert information and support for those seeking insight into the painful realities of cheating and infidelity, sex and porn addiction, as well as the relationship between chronic drug abuse and paired sexual behavior, commonly known as chemsex. I'm your host, Dr. Rob Weiss, a licensed therapist, addiction specialist, sexologist, clinical educator, and author of 10 books on intimacy, addiction, sexuality, and relationship health. This podcast is a forum for discussing sex, love, and addiction in frank, fact-based, informative ways. My primary goal is to bring you clear advice, opinions, and feedback from some of the world's most renowned experts in human sexuality, trauma, addiction, mental health, and relationship intimacy. This show is sponsored by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs, which are also dedicated to providing expert-focused, highly specialized residential treatment for men struggling with sex, porn, and related addictions. You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. Hey guys, this is Dr. Rob. You know, once in a while something comes along that I think is really special that I want you to hear. And I spent uh, an afternoon recently doing a short lecture on pro-dependence. And I've got to tell you, you know, to really understand this concept and to really differentiate it from codependency, I think it takes some listening. So I was uh, able to grab the recording from these folks. And what you're about to hear is part one and part two of understanding pro-dependence moving beyond codependency. I hope you enjoy it. Let me just say quickly that this talk is based on a book that I wrote and it was published in 2018 called Prodependence, Moving Beyond Codependency. And it sold really well, but not as well as I had hoped. And the reason I realized is because people think that this is a book about codependency or moving beyond your codependency. That's not what I'm writing about. I'm writing about moving on the whole, moving beyond the whole concept of codependency is what this talk is really about. I'm going to start with a couple of care and giving scenarios, and I want you to, I'm going to play this role out as if this were me, and I'm going to give you two of them, and I want you to just compare them for your thinking. My wife, let's say, of 15 years has been diagnosed with cancer, and she's really resistant to cancer treatment. She hates the chemo. She doesn't want to go back. We have three kids under the age of 14 at home, and the outcome of her cancer is uncertain. Now, in response to this deep crisis in our family, I go out of my way as her husband to assist her and care for my family. I push aside my own needs and my desires in the process. I I start working two jobs. I stop my self-care. I quit all my recreational activities. I might gain weight. I might start working two jobs to cover for her. I stop exercising. I lose sleep. And I worry about my family all the time. During the course of her cancer, I have to say, I found myself feeling sick, overwhelmed, hypervigilant, and in many ways, kind of afraid much of the time. I don't know if she's going to get well or not. Now, how do my friends, my family, my therapist, and my employer react to this scenario? Don't you think that, how would they advise and support me? You know, would they, I think that in this scenario, people would bring me casseroles and tell me I'm a hero and they love me and they're so sorry I'm going through this and could they spend a night at my house so I could get out and they could look after the family so I could have time for myself. I think those are the kinds of things that would happen if this were the scenario in my life. And I think that most people would consider me and my family, in fact, to have been a victim of cancer. 
you know, when I met my wife 15 years ago, I didn't expect her to end up with this kind of cancer. And when we had our kids, we didn't expect this to happen. There were no real signs, but this is where we are. The whole family's in a crisis. Now, I'm going to change this scenario and I'm going to change it to addiction. My wife of 15 years has become addicted to opiates and she's resistant to treatment. In fact, she already went through once and she's right back with the drugs and the alcohol and I can't get her to even talk to a therapist. We have three kids at home under the age of 14 and the outcome of her getting sober is really uncertain. Now, in response to this crisis, I go out of my way to assist her and I care for my family, pushing aside my own needs and my own desires in the process. I start working two jobs. I stop self-care. I quit my recreational activities. I gain weight. I stop exercise. I lose sleep and I am worried all of the time. After a while, I've started to feel sick and overwhelmed and hypervigilant and, and reactive and afraid. I don't know what the outcome of my family is going to be. How do you think my friends, my family members, my therapist, and my employer might react to this situation? How do you think they would advise and support me and would it be different? Would they, as I do, by the way, consider me and my family to have been, in essence, victimized by alcoholism or opiates, opiate addiction? Because my wife and I, you see, when we got together 15 years ago, we had a whole bunch of fun, but there wasn't really active addiction in our lives. When we had kids, there really wasn't an active addiction problem. But when she broke that arm and leg and she got on opiates and ever since it's been a nightmare. So we weren't expecting all of this. I would say to you that probably this family is just as victimized by cancer. I'm sorry, by uh, addiction as the family prior is, is uh, victimized by cancer. And yet we don't look at it in the same way in our world and specifically in the addiction world. And I wonder why, like, what is the difference between someone who is medically ill and their family's a crisis and someone who's mentally ill or addicted, which is a form of mental illness, and they're in a crisis? Well, I think we've always stigmatized addiction, right? I mean, the, addiction, the addictions are stigmatized. So, of course, anyone in association, close proximity to an addict would be stigmatized, too. Because if we think, oh, well, if they just, if the addict would just get it together and just stop. And, you know, if you think that way, or even in an AA perspective, like, well, they just can't get sober. They're not trying hard enough. Well, then what do we think about the spouse? That they're losers, that they should be, that they're enabling, that they should know better. All of these kinds of judgments, in my opinion, that we have about family members and spouses. Now, medical caregivers, they're stigmatized too, but more with pity. You know, if I'm looking after my wife with cancer, they say, oh, poor dear. If I look over after someone with addiction, they look at me like, hmm, maybe he needs to do this differently. That makes no sense to me. Now, I do understand that caregiving and traditional female gender roles like mother and nurse and social worker and teacher, we are already underpaid, undervalued and stigmatized. So someone in a caregiving position to anybody is always going to be one down. Mental health caregivers, well, they have stigma by association too, but I will tell you that the word codependency and none of those concepts are used in mental health today. And I'll simply say to you that, you know, if you tell a family, and this is very codependency focused, if you tell a family that's got a bipolar broken person that they need to back off and let that person figure it out for themselves and they need to distance themselves and let the person really figure out how hard life is and they need that will motivate them to get on their meds and anything else is enabling them. Well, that's how we get homelessness, homelessness. And the mental health community understands that it isn't all of the treatment and recovery is not at all about distancing and separation, that we need family support more than any support to help the troubled person heal. And I don't think it's any different in the addictions. Now, we also have a documented history in the addiction field of reacting to blaming, shaming, hurting and blaming and shaming 
hurting, angry, and confused people who are deeply fearful that they're going to lose their daughter or their husband or their wife to addiction. And yet we turn to them and we label them. Now, shaming female caregivers in the addictions is nothing new. And I took a quote from William White, and Dr. White is sort of the historian of the addiction field. When I worked on my PhD, I was looking at how partners were treated and caregivers in, in like the 40s and 50s in AA and NA and all, or AA, there was no NA. And what he said was, he said, the general view of the alcoholic wife depicted in early AA and psychotherapy literature, which is like the 30s, 40s, and 50s, was that of a woman who was neurotic, sexually repressed, dependent, man-hating, domineering, mothering, guilty, and masochistic, and or hostile and nagging. The typical therapist view of the wife of an alcoholic at that time generally was one of, I would drink too if I were married to her. In my belief system, codependency is just a much more sophisticated version of blaming and labeling and shaming innocent caregivers who've done nothing more than try to rescue the person they love, which by the way, any of us would do if the person we love was failing for whatever reason. Over the past 35 years, we have seen in the addictions, multiple new treatment models developed for addicts. We have somatic therapies and Buddhist therapies and non 12 step and all kinds of things. I could name a dozen. But when it comes to the formal research based models of treatment for family of addicts, for loved ones of addicts, for spouses of addicts, we have only one model and we've only had one model for 35 years. But how accurate is that model? How proven is that model? How realistic? in day-to-day life in 2020 is a model that was made in 1982. The trauma-sourced, trauma-based codependency model, even when you stretch it, you restructure it, and Lord knows we have, and I'll explain that in a minute. Even though you advance it, you stretch it to meet changing views of the addictions, it's still codependency. It's still a model that is based in trauma. Early childhood trauma reactivity is the essence of codependency. And we have no new fully articulated research-based models for the treatment of spouses and family of loved ones. It's like the whole addiction community went to sleep in 1985 and said, we'll just keep this forever and never look at it and never change it. Although I certainly hear people being unhappy with codependency. So this is how all this happened. And in my research, I got to look at how did codependency happen? Was it a clinical issue? Was it a public issue? Was it a pop issue? Was it a male? How did this happen? And I really got to study it. And so I'm going to talk to you about some of that. And some of this history will be familiar with you to you and some of it won't. These four books defined and dominated the field of and the concept of codependency in the 1980s. They laid out the underlying concepts of that, I call it a drama model, it's a trauma model, sorry about that. And the theory about it remains unchanged by definition since publication. And here are the books. We have Claudia Black's It Will Never Happen to Me in 1982, uh, Women Who Love Too Much, Robin Norwood in 1985, Codependent No More, Melody Beatty in 1986, and Diagnosing and Creating Codependency or Codependence in 1986. A couple of things. The reason I put um, Tim Cermak's book, Diagnosing and Treating Codependence, is because he was an MD and he was involved with the APA. And his job in this whole codependency movement, he took it on for himself, was to make sure that codependency made it into the DSM. He put out research project after research. He wrote this book. He did all this work. But to date, let me just remind you that codependency has never been in the DSM, has never been in the ICD. It has never, ever 
been a mental health diagnosis. And all of you know that you cannot bill someone under codependency because as far as the insurance companies are concerned, it doesn't exist. And as far as mental health is concerned, codependency doesn't exist. It's only in the addiction world where we wrap ourselves around and in the pop culture world where we wrap ourselves around this concept as if it were immutable, had to be there forever. Um, I do want to say also something about Claudia Black's book. I think Claudia actually had the right idea. And I always give her kudos for this because when she was writing before really Melody Beatty came along, Claudia Black was talking about this concept called co-addiction. And she said partners are co-addicted. And what she meant by that, I agree with, which is there's a huge crisis in the family and the crisis is around alcoholism or drug addiction. And that partner or that parent or that loved one becomes obsessed with the person's drinking or using or or really obsessed with the problem. And I agree with that. I think when there is a crisis around addiction, that people who love the addict become obsessed with their problem. But I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And think I, in fact, I think that's what any of us would do if someone in our family was failing. Let me give you a, a little story. I was doing this talk in Boston about a year ago. And um, I had a guy, I noticed him in the audience. He was a social worker, I found out later. He had a, this huge backpack on his back, this big purple backpack. And I kind of saw it. It was like he didn't have a place for it in the audience. And when I was signing books after, he came up to me and he said, I get it. I'm like, what do you mean? And he said, well, you see this backpack here? And I said, yeah, you can't miss it. It's huge. He said, well, it's full of books on cancer. He said, because three weeks ago, my dad told me that he had cancer. And so far, I have bought every book, read every article, gone to every, I want to learn how to help him. And he said, when I listened to your talk, I realized that's why the spouses, the parents read every book, go to every, do detective work, go to every resource they can to learn about addiction because they feel out of control. They want to try to help their partners and they don't know how. And everything they've done to try to help hasn't worked. So um, they keep looking. And I don't think that's craziness or codependency or anything to be labeled. I think that's someone who loves their partner and wants them to get better. And they will do anything, put down their own life to make that person better. And what is wrong with that? If you love me and I love you and you are failing, I got to tell you, I've been married 20 years. I will put down my life as it is to take care of my husband. No question. And I don't think there's anything about that but love. So when people start accusing others of acting out or doing unhealthy things in relationship to love, I'm not sure you can do anything negative in relationship to love. Even if the action you take is not useful, does that mean it really came out of your early childhood trauma, drama, and enabling repetition? Or does it simply mean that you love the person and you're trying to help them get better and you don't know how? The problem I have with Melody Beatty and all the books that came after is that, that Beatty said, no, 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 you don't get it. First of all, she took out the word addiction. So we got codependency. Now, that nasty word addiction makes nobody comfortable. So Claudia was right to use it. But when Melody Beatty said codependency, then anyone who was dependent on anyone or overly dependent was considered to be troubled and sick. And I remember the 80s. It was part of pop. You were a co. I was a co. We're all co's. You know, I, I planned that vacation. Oh, you're such a co. It became this huge pop culture phenomenon about codependency all over the world. But that doesn't mean that it is clinically sound, not in the way we look at it, just because a lot of people think it's interesting and believe it. And in my opinion, just because a lot of people are willing to attack themselves for the love they've given to a broken person doesn't make it right, especially in our field. Now, if you look at a little bit of what, what happened back then, 
Codependent No More sold 11 million copies. That's a lot of books for a self-help book, trust me. And uh, I've written 10. And it was translated into 16 languages. Um, it became the stunning self-revelation book without question of the 1980s. But who was this book for and who read it? Was it for men and women? No. And I can promise you this because 95% of self-help books today and in the 1980s were read by women. So 95% of the people who read Codependent No More were women. And they were looking at it through a women's perspective and not only a woman's perspective, but a woman's perspective in the 1980s. At a time, I don't think women wanted to be too dependent on men. I think they wanted to kind of push their way through that glass ceiling. So women bought 95% of Codependent No More and all self-help books titles at the time, and they continue to do so today. As of 1990, there were 102 books. I want you to think about that. Four years after Codependent No More, there were four, 102 books on the market without, with some form of the word codependency in the title. Let me tell you why. And this was a mistake that Melody Baby made. She didn't trademark the word codependency, which meant that anybody who had an idea about what she wrote, whether I agree with it or not, anybody could take and write about. And they did because everyone saw how popular the concept was. So everybody wrote a book about it. Which one is the right one? As of 2018, when I did my dissertation in English only, I didn't count foreign languages, there were over 340 books with some form of the word codependency in the title. And I ask you, which is the right one? Which am I supposed to follow? I'm a first year addiction student who's learning about working with addicts in the hospital. How do I learn about working with their partners, their parents and their spouses? And are you going to dip me as a student into codependency? I don't think that's a great idea. Neither, and I really want to be clear about this, because most, first of all, I treat sex addiction. It has never been in the DSM, but clearly it was such a profound problem, problem all over the world, that 30 years after Pat Carnes talked about it, it is a diagnosis called um, compulsive sexual behavior disorder in the ICD-11. And trust me, it'll be in the 5R because now compulsive sexual behavior is accepted as a problem. But caring for other people to the point where you lose sight of reality I think that's what happens whenever you love somebody and they fail long enough. Neither codependence nor codependency have ever been a DSM or ICD-based criteria diagnosis. We have no formal criteria in mental health to say you have this issue or you don't. And despite all the pressure from pop culture and the books in the 1980s and 90s, the research never clinically validated these hypothetical beliefs. Thus, the diagnosis does not stand. It never existed. It just didn't. I hope you're enjoying this two-part podcast on understanding pro-dependence. If you need help in this area, please reach out to Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now, here's why. And I really want you to get this, okay, from a mental health and troubled person perspective, someone who really needs our help, pathological dependency has always been in the DSM and the ICD as dependent personality disorder. Dependent personality disorder means that you are so dependent on me that you are not functional unless I'm around. You'll stay in bed. You won't eat. You'll be suicidal. That's dependent personality disorder. We already had a diagnosis for people who were overly dependent to the point that their functioning was failing. That is why, since we had an existing designation for people who were profoundly dependent 
due, due to relationship over dependency, there never seemed like a reason to put codependency in here because codependent people are functional. They're not in hospitals for the most part. They're not um, in mental, Ill, in mental, you know, they're not in mental illness population. They are people in a crisis who are really struggling, but does that mean they are inherently broken in and of themselves? And that is what codependency says. If you marry an addict, if you live with an addict, if you love a mentally ill person, there must be something wrong with you. And I don't buy that. Now, I seriously want to ask you guys, because I've been around for a while, what has not been said? These are the, this is now, okay? Codependency loves me, loves me not in 2014. Codependency for dummies in February, 2015. The end of codependency, June, 2016. Conquering codependency, August, 2016. Codependency recovery guide, May, 2018. Those are books number 338, 339, 340, and 341 on codependency. Which one, folks, could it be that we keep writing about this over and over again, because it's never quite worked. And maybe we haven't figured it out because it isn't a viable diagnosis. That's what I believe. And this sets my hair on fire. And I don't have any hair. Let's talk about codependency as, as we know it from the past. And as I said, you can stretch it, you can change it, you can make it a, have a pretty cover on book number 350. But it is still codependency. Basic theories don't change over time when because you write a new book about that theory. Codependence is a trauma, an early childhood trauma-based theory of human relationship dependency, which by definition states that those who partner with an addict or a mentally ill person have to do so because they need to re-engage their trauma and act it out in their adult life. And here's the basics of codependency. Codependent people will unconsciously attach to broken people whose own needs will eventually exceed their own, overwhelm them, and therefore they're re repeating their trauma. These caregivers, by definition, are seen to be acting out their own early trauma-based, low self-esteem, desperate fear of, fear of abandonment, and need for approval with their addicted partner. And I want you to hear how this looks. Thus, their focused caregiving for a troubled person they love under codependency is perceived as a trauma-related character flaw. If you loved yourself more, you wouldn't be giving so much to that other person. I don't think so. The word itself, as I said, codependency early or evolved from an earlier phrase that Claudia Black coined in, in 1979 called co-addiction. By removing the word addiction from the concept of unhealthy dependency, um, then the concept became to, accessible to everybody. And now anybody could be a co. And as I said, in the 80s, we all were a little bit co. Now, what do I think is wrong with the codependency model? Why am I fighting this struggle so strongly when everybody seems to just be in love with this model we've had for 35 years? Well, I'm not. And here's why. It's analytic. It looks at early complex childhood trauma. It's exploratory. So the analytic and exploratory nature of how we assess and treat people we believe are codependent, what is required that we ask them and what we show them under that model in my belief system, it, I believe it alienates them. I believe it doesn't resonate with them. It doesn't feel like what they've been doing. Um, it exacerbates, in fact, their fears that somehow they are responsible for the addict's problem. And their feelings are very human and non-pathological because we always think when there's a crisis, did some part of it belong to me? I mean, that's what grief is. You know, when my grandmother died, I thought, oh, I wish I'd had that conversation. Maybe there's something I could have done. Of course, when a sick, when someone we love becomes ill, we start to question ourselves. Is that necessarily healthy? I don't think so, but it's just a naturally occurring process. I'm not sure that we have to hold loving parents 
or spouses who've done everything they could, right or wrong, out of love to try to help this person, I don't think we should label them as broken or explore their brokenness, especially in the beginning. In my experience, this tends to anger loved ones by leaving them wondering why so much attention is being placed on their dysfunction when they have been the hyper-functional ones all along. They're the ones who had three jobs and tried to keep the family together. I don't believe from a very basic social work concept of being where the client is. I don't think when you're a woman who's just come into the hospital because your husband just finally got in for sobriety and you're going to your first family group, I know that what you want to hear is great job. You got them here. They're alive. Good for you. As opposed to now, we need to break down your childhood and see how you're part of the problem. I have seen clients say, fuck you and walk out of treatment because they did not want to be blamed for the problem. They did not see how they were part of the problem. And then we therapists turn around and say, oh, that poor dear, she just doesn't get it because she doesn't fit into our model. When did we ever do treatment where we blamed blamed clients because they couldn't fit into our model? Isn't our job to understand where they are and what's going on with them in the middle of this crisis rather than fitting them into some belief system that we absolutely are certain will help them and I'm not sure really does? Because not being where the client is leaves clients feeling more judged than understood. The codependency's model, or its early focus on quickly engaging such struggling people who've been in a crisis for a long time with their loving family it or whatever kind of family they've had, they've been in a crisis. Asking these people in the very early stages of their own healing to do a deep dive into their past, their part, their history, and their problem is counterintuitive to keeping them actively engaged in treatment. Codependency requires a clinical framework that views desperate, loving spouses and parents of addicts who I believe are likely just doing their best. It views them as enabling and difficult people whose own problems are getting in the way of healing a loved one. And therefore we have to solve the partner and parents' problems in order to make sure that the addict stays sober. I don't think so, because I'm not sure the partner is the problem in any way, except maybe they don't know how to live with a broken person. I'm sorry, did you go to high school or college unless you're a therapy student and learn how to live with an addict? I don't think you did. So why would we, why would we expect that a spouse or a partner or a parent is going to know how to do it right? Codependency assumes, and this is a real 80s concept, that the client who is told they're codependent will have many, many therapy sessions, individual, and then they're going to go to a codependency group and maybe some workshops, and they're going to have lots of time to consider and journal and reflect and learn about themselves, because that's what we did in the 1980s. But most people today do not have the time, the interest, the focus, or the affordability to go into deep, meaningful, long-term therapy. What would be wrong with the concept of the family just going back to the way it was before the addiction took hold? What if, as we know, we know that partner and that parent is not who they were three years ago when they come to us, they're nagging, they're complaining, they're exhausted, they're overwhelmed because of the crisis they've been through with this person who will not get sober. And they have tried their darndest to get this person sober or at least make it better, but unfortunately they're not trained in addiction treatment, so they just did the best they can. And I wanna bring up one of my favorite stories for you because um, I, this is a, a completely different view than codependency. So I worked with a wife who of, a, of an alcoholic, pretty serious alcoholic, who had three kids at home 
And she said to me the following. She came into my office because he had started drinking during the day and he was going to get DUIs and get, you know, he was going to pick the kids up drunk at school and he was going to lose his job. And this is what she told me. She said, you know, I thought I'd figure it out how to deal with the drinking. You see, the problem was, is that my husband was drinking. I don't care what he does at night. He can pass out. But in the daytime, I don't want him driving drunk with my kids. I need him to earn that living and I don't want him getting arrested. So I made an agreement with him three years ago or two years ago. I put a bottle of vodka on the table one day when he got home from work cold. And I said, if you can come home from work and be sober all the way to four o'clock, here's this bottle waiting for you every day. Now, in the codependency field, that would be horrifying. This woman is bringing home bottles to her addict. What could be more enabling and mesh than that? And I don't even understand that because I look at her and I say, wow, how clever were you? You managed to get two more years out of that man who was drinking despite your inability to get him sober for two more years. You got the rent paid. He didn't drive drunk and the kids were picked up. But now he's drinking during the day. So your solution, as good as it was, didn't really help get to getting him sober. But you know what? That's okay, because now you have me, the addiction counselor or the therapist, and you and I together are going to help you do what you were unable to do yourself, although you really tried. Um, we're going to get this person sober. I think when you meet people with that kind of message, even if their actions were not what you would have wanted during the addiction phase, I think they will embrace us. In fact, I know this because I already see the research going on. The work goes much faster with people we don't label and blame for the love they give gave to the person they care about or the family they adore, no matter how poorly they gave that work. We intent, we in pro-dependence believe that it was only given with love and the desire to restore their family to help. Now, one more thing. Do partners and family members of addicts act out trauma when someone is failing that they love through addiction? Absolutely. I will absolutely see anybody in a crisis, little kids, adults, regress when they're under a severe crisis. Kids who are eight are go back to wetting the bed. Adults who are done with compulsions will go back to using and drinking. So I understand that stress exacerbates mental health issues. So I, I don't understand why we would blame the partners and the spouses for who they are when they show up in our offices, which is often overweight, nagging, and a mess. What I'm interested in is how do they get there? And maybe three years, maybe as partners and parents often tell me, I've become the person I never wanted to be. Have you ever heard that? Now I'm nagging, I've gained weight, I'm not friendly, I, I love her, but I'm yelling at her. That has to do with the crisis and trying to live through a crisis. And it may have to do with regressing into trauma based on living in a crisis. But during the course of a crisis and immediately after, my friends, and the, and the crisis is the active alcoholic, the active user, until that person gets sober, the crisis is not over. Why would I do analytic, exploratory trauma work on someone's past when they're in the middle of a crisis and barely getting through the day with the person they love who's drinking? I wouldn't. Why would you? Now, there are a lot of reasons. I could, If you read the book, it's in pro-dependence, how we got here. But I'll say a few things about it, and, and, and I'm not going to go deeply into it. Systems theory, in part, got us here because systems theory looked at, oh, well, it isn't just the addict who's a part of this addictive system. It's everyone in the family. And John Bradshaw gave us names for all those people, scapegoat and clown and all those names. And it may well be true that they act those things out. But I don't believe they're acting it out because they are inherently broken. I believe they're acting out all those parts and roles systemically because they are responding to a meaningful crisis in the family. 
And they're not encouraging them. They're not enabling it. They would give anything for it to stop. They just know how to stop it. So instead of, unfortunately, seeing these people as victims of a crisis, we see them as having decided to be a part of this family because they already have problems. And then they then they joined this family because they wanted a place to act those problems out. I just, that's confusing. Now, early trauma theory, and let's remember this, we didn't get trauma work until the 80s. Um, there was no trauma centers, no reporting services for children who were being abused. There was none of that until the 1980s. So in the 1980s, we were really looking at trauma and we were really looking at its effect on early life. PTSD only was named in the late 1970s. And in the early 80s, you know, people like Bessel van der Kolk and John Briere and Christine Courtois, they were noticing that there were people who acted out in very similar ways to the people who'd gone to Vietnam who had trauma, but they'd never gone to Vietnam. And we started getting the idea that early complex or life trauma could profoundly affect adult life. And that's trauma theory in many ways. I'm just not sure it applies. Just because it was hot and everybody was talking about it, we were beating each other with bataka bats in the 1980s to get our anger out. I'm just not sure that that theory applies to what happens when someone you love falls apart and you don't know how to make it better and you're doing everything you can to make it better and you do regress into a little bit of your trauma and your panic. I don't see what that has to do with your issues. Now, humanistic psychotherapy, which came along in the 1960s, you know, that moved us out of, and Esalen, by the way, California, this is California West Coast therapies. If you don't know it, it's humanistic psychotherapy that through which came almost everything you guys are excited about today, which is, you know, EMDR, not EMDR, but somatic therapies, body therapies, mindfulness. It all came from uh, Esalen in the 1960s, along with a lot of drugs, I'm sure. But there was a focus in started in the 1980s that moved away from what's wrong with this person to looking at what's right with this person. And we got this whole movement in the late 80s. I know I went to lots of seminars, LifeSpring, Est, Insight. That is when the me generation was really all about me. In other words, how can I achieve the most I can and be the most successful I can be? When I think of this time in our history, I think of Bill Clinton, someone who's so gifted, so smart, so intellectually powerful. He can use all those gifts, but emotionally, not so much. And, you know, when I think about our focus in the 1980s about personal achievement and personal success, I think it was missing something. And we're going to talk more about that in a second. Folks, I hope you really got a lot out of Prodependence Part 1. And upcoming is the rest of the lecture. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our Treatment Center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com. There you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide, which I think is some of the best, most useful, short-term effective intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity, as well as combined drug sex or chem sex problems. On SeekingIntegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at Rob at SeekingIntegrity.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care.